Keep in touch with the Wolf Connection podcast on our Instagram handle at the Wolf Connection Pod or email us your questions, comments, and guest ideas to podcast at wolfconnection.org. Thank you for your support and howls to you all. Welcome to the Wolf Connection podcast. I'm your host, John Calvin. All right, so just as we were speaking before we started recording, it's been basically a year since we've had this individual on. Some things have changed, some things have not. Um, Thanksgiving plans getting pushed. Those are <laughs> things that have stayed the same. Uh, but when you're the carnivore coexistence attorney for Wild Earth Guardians, I guess that's kind of the run-of-the-mill stuff. Lizzie Pennock back with, back with us to talk about the latest uh, injunction, the temporary relief that was passed for threatened grizzly bears, and it ties in with wolves. So can't very excited to have her back on. Lizzie, first off, how are you, um, and how's everything going? I'm okay. I'm busy. Uh, I'm looking forward to a few weeks off at the end of this month. But um, like I said a few minutes ago, waking up on Monday after Thanksgiving, knowing that wolf trapping and snaring was not happening across most of Montana was, I don't know how you have a better way to start the day, honestly. Yeah. I mean, you, you guys have done incredible work and, and I know, I know last time we spoke, it's, as you say, very push and pull, it's back and forth. Sometimes you, you get, take two steps forward, it's three steps back. It's very back and forth. I think let's just bounce right into this and give everybody just a basic overview of what was passed. So I'll just read the, the, the first, I'll just read the tagline, I guess, or the, the headline here of what you guys sent out from Wild Earth Guardians. It said that the court grants temporary relief for threatened grizzly bears. The judge issues an interim ban on wolf trapping in Montana grizzly bear habitat while this lawsuit proceeds. So just give everybody an overview of what that absolutely means. Like you said, wolf snaring and trapping did not start on Monday. And I guess just go from there uh, and how things are proceeding. Yeah. So this case was really not spearheaded by us. It was spearheaded by the Flathead Lolo Bitterroot Citizen Task Force. And we are a plaintiff group with them being represented by Tim Bechtold, who's a lawyer here in Montana. He has done a few grizzly bear cases um, successfully. So um, I just want to shout out that credit. um, And we're really glad to be a part of this. Um, So what happened and how this started really... I'll start with the more immediate, you know, this injunction, this big deal that we sent you all the press release about. Um, At the end of September, we filed a complaint against the state of Montana. In addition to a preliminary injunction motion in federal court in Missoula. Um, And we're alleging that the state is violating Section 9 of the Endangered Species Act because it is authorizing wolf and coyote trapping and snaring all across grizzly bear habitat, which is likely to and has in the past taken grizzly bears within the meaning of the Endangered Species Act, which is illegal. Um, and then on November 20th, we had a hearing, a preliminary injunction hearing in federal court. And we basically argued to the judge 
that we need this temporary relief while the lawsuit proceeds. So the injunction will stop some of the challenged activity, which is the wolf trapping and snaring, while we figure out who ultimately wins on the merits of the case, which can take a while. (laughs) So the next day, Tuesday, this is all the week of Thanksgiving, um, around 5 p.m. or 4 p.m., we got the order from the judge, and it is one of the more beautiful things I've ever read in my life. And he granted the preliminary injunction as it relates to wolf trapping and snaring in regions one through five, plus three additional counties, um, Hill, Blaine, and Phillips counties. So no wolf trapping and snaring can happen in those areas during the times when grizzly bears are likely to be out of their dens. So what that means is trapping and snaring is limited to January 1st to February 15th. Whereas in most of that area, before the injunction, it would have started Monday and it would go until March 15th. And there's, we'll get into this as we get into the weeds, but there's a floating season open date. That means some of this area trapping and snaring for wolves could have started later. Um, But that like regions one through five is almost the entire state. It's the Western two thirds of the state. And that's where almost all of the wolves are. And obviously it's where all of the grizzly bears are for the most part. So, I mean, I mean, maybe we talked about this last time and you just kind of were, I feel like we're about to go into it there, but if we did just, can you remind us how grizzly bear habitat in the way it's being used here is, is sort of defined? That is a good question. And it's like an open question. You know, we can talk about suitable habitat or occupied habitat or estimated occupied range or places where grizzly bears may be present. Um, Yeah, all of these terms are floating around. So we have, so we can go into like, you know, where are grizzly bears at? Um, When, you know, grizzly bears were listed as threatened under the Endangered Species Act in the 70s, there were seven to 800 grizzly bears left. Whereas historically, there were approximately 50,000 covering 18 states of the West down into Mexico, up through Canada, tons of bears, same plight as with wolves. They were eradicated, exterminated, poisoned, shot, trapped for the same reasons by the same people, which, you know, just totally diminished their numbers and almost ended up extirpating the lower 48 population. So that entity, the lower 48 population segment got listed in 1993. The Fish and Wildlife Service, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service did a recovery plan and identified these recovery zones where grizzly bears, you know, with suitable habitat, places where grizzly bears were or could be And that includes the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem, the Northern Continental Divide ecosystem, which is entirely within Montana and is kind of around Glacier. Obviously, lots of wolves in both of those areas as well. And then the Bitterroot ecosystem, which is um, part of it, the eastern part of it's in Montana and the rest is in Idaho. 
And then we have a couple more in northern, northwestern Montana and eastern Washington. So the big populations are the greater Yellowstone ecosystem and the northern continental divide ecosystem, where we have a less than 2,000 bears, primarily in those areas. We really want bears in the Bitterroots. So, you know, if we're looking at, I actually have it here on my desk, the maybe present map, all those blue areas. Mm. I know you guys can see this. That's where they may be present. But then it's like, well, are they denning? Are they having cubs? Is it just one random bear that walked through this area? How do we define that? It's been a big fight in the Bitterroots because we know there are bears there. But the authorities are saying, well, it's not occupied because it doesn't meet this metric of bears that have denned or cubs or, you know, these life history metrics to say that bears are occupying this area. So Fish, Wildlife, and Parks uses estimated occupied range, and that has changed between last year and this year. And that goes into the wolf hunting and trapping regulations. So, you know, we say when you're putting these wolf traps and snares out on the landscape, you're threatening bears. Bears are going to get stuck in these. You're going to violate the law. They say, no, we have the correct protections in place that will keep that from happening. That protection is called the floating season open date. And it uses, I can send you guys the maps after this, um, if you don't already have them, but it, it uses the map of the estimated occupied range, according to fish, wildlife and parks of where grizzly bears are and says, okay, in those areas, we're going to use a floating season open date for wolf trapping and snaring. So generally Mm. trapping would start Monday after Thanksgiving, but in the areas on the map, it could start as late as December 31st, depending on what FWP would call a real-time reading of conditions. I see. So an estimation of when bears have gone into hibernation. Right. Exactly. Which obviously was a big part of the lawsuit because we think all of that is inadequate. Um, yeah. So I, that was a long answer to your question, but <laughs> it's a complicated question, which is so silly <laughs> because it really shouldn't be. That That's the only regulation, this floating season date was the only regulation that was – well, Well, so let's say the ruling hadn't occurred. Are, are there other regulations – similar to the floating season start date in place that encourage or or make mandatory certain trapping practices that m- make it less likely to impact grizzlies accidentally like like proximity from known dens or anything or or was the floating season date kind of like the the be all end all that's basically their be all end all they do nothing else they will say and they did say well, wolf trapping isn't allowed in lynx protection zones. And this came up in the hearing. Um, And that's because they got sued about that too, about trapping, wolf trappings, threatened harm to lynx, which are also protected under the ESA. Um, But snaring is still allowed in lynx protection zones. And we know that there's still trapping going on in those areas. So that's one of the other things they pointed to. Um, Mm. And... Yeah. 
yeah, as far as the regulations go, that's it. Wow. It just seems like there's a lot, you're step, they're stepping in it. It seems like everywhere they try to do this and it, it almost would seem as though it would behoove them to just stop it altogether because you're running into, no matter I think where you push it and it, or push it or float the dates or whatever it is, you're going to run into some sort of carnivore or animal that is listed or threatened. And I think we spoke about this last time about the lynx. And that was, that was another reason why the snaring and trapping and all these things are not suitable to be put or it should it, it it's it's a way of hunting that or or whatever you want to call it that that should really be just banned for good um and okay. someone in that again i don't know the life of you know again we're not, i'm not talking about people 150 years ago but that we shouldn't be using this stuff now and clearly i mean you sent us some pictures earlier that to say they're graphic or you know, I guess really, you know, are, are is sort of a, they're, they're very bad in terms of the impacts of traps on bears, on traps. I mean, first of all, traps on wolves, traps on bears, lynx, any animal, it's a cruel and unusual punishment for anything that runs into these things. Snaring. I mean, when we were, were at the Yellowstone Wolf Summit and Carter Niemeyer and Casey York were demonstrating what these traps can do, it, it's not, it's not pretty at all. And it's the amount of wildlife that gets caught accidentally in these things when you're looking for a wolf or whatever it may be and you snare a cougar or you snare a dog or a per I mean a person could very easily walk into these things it's really just not healthy to have this stuff out of the landscape for, for the amount of people that walk through for the amount of dogs that walk through for the amount of wildlife that's there it just doesn't seem to work I mean what are the penalties now going forward because let's say, I mean, again, there can be injunctions all day long. If there is to, if, if something is to come about where a bear is caught or a wolf is caught or a lynx is caught with this injunction in place while this case plays out, what are the penalties moving forward if anything is to happen? Or are you, do you, are you not aware of what, what those would be? That's a good question. Um, also, I want to say this out loud so we can go back to it. I think the regulations... Um, to get to your question earlier, actually go the opposite way and incentivize more trapping and snaring that would bring grizzly bears towards those traps. So I think we should circle back to that. Sure, yeah. Um, to answer your question, John, so, I mean, any trapping of a grizzly bear by anyone is illegal. Right. We sued Montana because they're authorizing that activity, which is also illegal. So, and, you know, in line with the court order, they're, they have, they are staying, sticking to the court order. So if they stick within those bounds, they're not violating what the court has said they need to do. Um, so I don't foresee, you know, the state of Montana going rogue and authorizing some sort of wolf trapping or snaring that violates a federal court order because that just isn't going to turn out well for them. Um, and there's already an appeal like for the injunction moving through. So I think they'll stick to that process. Wolves. So if, yeah. So if somebody went out and trapped a wolf outside of the season, I mean, that would be poaching. It would be like shooting a deer outside of the regulated season. So those are the, you know, that's the type of penalties that would apply is for, is for poaching wildlife 
It's for poaching, yeah. So go back. So so circle back to what you were talking about before, before we lose track of, of what that was. So just go into um, what you were talking about. The You said the incentivization of trapping and, and snaring for bears or whatever that is. Yeah. Go into that. Yeah. So not only does the state do basically nothing to protect bears from wolf traps and snares, but the way that wolf trapping and snaring is regulated actually attracts bears. And this was a big part of the lawsuit. So like if before bears den for the few months before denning, they're in a hyperphagia period where they're just trying to eat as much as they can. Think fat bear week. There's a reason they're doing that because they're about to just sleep and not eat. Um, So during that time, and at all times, really, they have such a powerful sense of smell. And when they're so food motivated as during hyperphagia, they can smell from a really far distance. And wolf trapping and snaring can be baited and have scented lures. So a trap can be set within 30 feet of visible bait. And we talked about this with the Yellowstone wolves, people baiting wolves out of the park and then shooting them. Um, So this is a huge, baiting is just a problem across the board. Grizzly bears will be attracted to that bait. And then scented lures, there's no like setback requirement or anything. That can just be on the trap or the snare. Grizzly bears are going to be attracted to all of that, even from a far distance. Um, So even if it's in an area where it's not a dense population of grizzly bears, the grizzly bear can still travel a far distance because it's attracted to those baits. And then the same thing at the end of the season. So, you know, the state's saying we have this floating season open date. We won't put out wolf traps and snares until we think bears are denned, which, you know, we can get into that later, how inadequate their determination of that really is. But there's no floating season end date when bears start emerging. We'll start seeing reports of bears coming out of their dens in February. And if the wolf trapping and snaring season ends March 15th, we know for a fact that there's going to be overlap of wolf trapping and snaring and bears who are very hungry again because they're coming out of denning. Um, so the, the length of the season, the time of the season, the overlap with bears outside of dens and how it coincides with those periods of very, very high, even relative for grizzly bears, very high food motivation makes it even more likely because baiting is allowed, because scented lures are allowed, because they've extended the wolf trapping season, it's so much more likely that bears are going to be caught in wolf traps. It really just seems the more we talk about this state and this wildlife management system there is that this Science, I mean, we've heard it, I think, from all over. Science is not being used in any way, shape, or form to use any of their management tools. If you are able to sit here and tell us that bears can smell from, who knows, probably miles away, something that they want to eat or whatever it is, and you're putting lures and snares and traps somewhere that are scented, baited, things like that, it would behoove the state to tell these people, hey, you can't do that because this is these are the circumstances, these are the consequences that will happen because of what you're doing to trap the animal you're looking to trap. But it really just seems over and over and over again when we talk about these these cases, these incidents where we see animals getting trapped or snared just by accident, that there is no penalty, there is no 
recourse and that th- these animals are being taken whether anybody seems to like it or not. And it's more not, it's not about the science. It's not about keeping this wildlife healthy. It's really just about getting the, getting the animal for whatever it's worth when you, when you trap it or kill it. And politics. I mean, even so I'm the wolf plan has come out in the last time we talked, we were talking about the lawsuit about the wolf plan. A lot's happened with that since then. And I'm reading the draft to prepare a comment and the, focus on how wolves will be managed based on social tolerance, socio-political tolerance, how it's wolf the wolf population is going to fluctuate as elected and appointed officials fluctuate. I mean, it's disgusting. This should be science. This is wildlife. And the state is just explicitly in its wildlife management plans and decisions and regulations, just openly admitting at this point, well, this is, this is politics, which we all know, you know, but it shouldn't be. And at all of the last three commission meetings where they've set wolf trapping and snaring season regulations, many, many people have been telling them this violates the ESA for grizzly bears, for lynx, now wolverines are listed. That's going to, you know, factor into this definitely next year. Um, but they just didn't listen. And it's Paul Fielder who has been pushing these trapping laws. And it's just such overreach to the point where they've, as I told them they would at the last commission meeting, shot themselves in the foot. And it's going to hopefully impact the delisting petition consideration that's going on right now at the Fish and Wildlife Service, which is the whole backdrop to this. Anyway. Yeah. I'm reading, uh, well, I was just looking up this article on, I think it's KTVH. Um, I don't even know what source that is really, but um, where Governor Gianforte says, uh, Montana has a healthy, sustainable population of wolves and grizzlies. And there has been no incidental take of grizzlies from wolf trapping in Montana since 2013. Is that, does that seem, is that accurate or is he just under reporting? That comes from the state's briefing. So it's undisputed in this case that there have been 21 verified instances of grizzly bears caught in wolf and coyote traps from like 1998 until within the past couple of years and that's verified the state agrees with that we agree with that the judge said every single one of those is a take every single one of those is a violation of the law um what but what they're saying is since 2013 there have been no relevant takes which means a grizzly bear caught in a wolf trap or snare set by a person like of the public wow oh i understand Right. Yeah, because we're challenging recreational wolf trapping and snaring, and they're saying, well, then that's all that's relevant. But that's wrong, and the judge agreed with us that, you know, it is relevant that, like, in 2021, we know two bears got caught in coyote traps. We see um, a prevalence and increase in trap-like injuries where bears have clean cut off toes, bears that are caught for other reasons, like research or conflict bears are just missing two of their toes. And these injuries that don't look like they come from 
a fight or something that would naturally happen to a bear, they look like a bear stepped in a trap and got its toes ripped off or cut off. And that's been increasing. There was an article published in 2022 that was all about that. It's one of the pictures I sent you in that email. Um, and, you know, that's one of the reasons we filed this lawsuit when we did is because that article came out in 2022. And then we had the commission meeting act, expand the area where wolf trapping and snaring could occur in grizzly habitat in 2023. Um, so that, yeah, since 2013, that's the relevant as the state would classify the relevant captures. But it, this was also another really big part of the case. I'm glad you brought it up is um, we, we see like the under reporting. So we have these verified instances. We also know trappers have no incentive to report bycatch in their trap. Um, grizzly bears can pull snares and traps like they can pull the anchor out of the ground and just walk away. We've seen pictures of grizzly bears walking around with traps on their paws. Um, yeah, like we know, and it's in scientific peer-reviewed literature that the under-reporting rates of bycatch and traps are incredibly high. So sure, we have just 21 verified instances. Then we have all those injuries that we've seen that are trap-like injuries um, we have pictures and anecdotal stories passed on to personnel at the agencies about people seeing bears with traps on them. Like there's so many things that show that this is a way bigger problem yeah. than the state will admit. Yeah. And injuries don't count as take, I assume. No, they do. They take do. is okay. extremely expansive. Yeah. Let me read out the definition of take yeah. because yeah, I it. think. I think it's important. I could just send you guys my PowerPoint that I made on this. It's yeah, definitely that too. But very pretty. Yeah, it should be it. shared. We'd love it. Yeah. Okay. Take under the Endangered Species Act is to harass, harm, pursue, hunt, shoot, wound, kill, trap, capture, or collect or attempt to engage in such conduct. So yeah, it's pretty broad. Yeah. And the case law, I mean, the ESA is such an incredible law, which is why the far right is attacking it at every level. Um, the case law with the ESA is so strong. And if we get into like the preliminary injunction standard, it, it plays into that too. But even in, in trapping specific cases under section nine, which is the section that prohibits take of listed species, even a animal that gets caught in a trap that has no injury, still a take, still a violation of the law. So, I mean, he's saying, you know, and he said, uh, he follows up by saying, well, by calling it a misuse of the ESA. And I'm wondering, do you anticipate this in some way? I mean, is it even possible? I don't know. I don't know the intricacies of, of, of these laws and how they can be changed. But do you anticipate this in some way having an additional an even possible negative effect, unfortunately, where they say this is an obstruction of our management plan and our ability to to manage wolves. And so we need to raise quotas for rifle hunting, for example. Could they do that? Is that possible? Because it sounds like it sounds it like he's trying to define this as basically um, again, a misuse of the ESA and like and and that it's a roundabout way to prevent them from managing a species that they now obviously have some kind of right to enact a, a plan to manage. Yeah, the the laws that were passed in 2021 in Montana 
which we challenged in our other lawsuit, um, they allow the commission to allow unlimited killing. Okay, so it's, I mean, so it can't really change much. It's already unlimited. <laughs> no, well, they're allowed to do that. I see, I see. It's they're allowed they've to do done that. Yet. So right now it's 10 via rifle and 10 via shopping, but very few people get to 10. Sure. So I think they could. I don't know if they could this season. Okay. Because they're already in place. Um, that just, doesn't mean I know that they can't, but honestly, um, I read that and I'm like, it's very clear to me that you don't quite understand what's going on because this case has nothing to do with the wolf plan. That's a whole separate thing. In his mind it does. And that's the, that's the thing <laughs> because they're all connected. I'm sure. And They'll do it anyway. I mean, that's the, that's the thing. Like no matter what. Sure. Yeah. People who hate carnivores are going to poach them kill them, poison them, you know, whatever we see it wherever wolves are. Um, it's going to happen. And I think, I think this case too will be more fodder for the Republican congressionals from Montana who are already in the U S Capitol. Like, you know, grizzly bears are recovered. We need to, this is keeping them on the list is an overuse of the ESA or overreach of the ESA and the federal government. And, um, yeah, we just don't know. I mean, the reason wolves here are delisted is because a senator put that into an appropriations bill. So, yeah, we just don't know. But we've already seen before this the federal congressionals, like, putting up bills and putting things forward in the House that would cut down the ESA or remove grizzly bear protections. So I don't know. I don't, I don't think we can make it worse if by trying, and we've certainly made it better in this case, there's always a risk of retaliation though. Is there any movement forward on the, I know I'm just switching gear for just a moment. Is there any movement on the wolf endangered species listing, relisting, report that was supposed to come out i don't know five, it seems like five years ago but it's really been like 18 months has there been any movement on that or no because it's not that i know of i think people are expecting something in february but i'm not sure if that something is a final decision or not i think we're expecting that like within the first half of next year though okay and that will and that's going to that would impact though these the rocky mountain states it would impact montana idaho wyoming the eastern part of washington all that stuff correct that would presumably it would, it would i presumably mean do that okay fish and wildlife service can kind of take those petitions and fashion if they don't just deny them they can fashion the relisting i think in the way that they see fit as far as I understand. Um, so I, I really don't know. Mm. And then there was something, so in, in this in this injunction for, for Grizzlies, and it's, I, I'm just reading over what you guys sent over, and, it, and it's, it says, until the court makes a final decision in the ongoing ESA uh, uh, case that was filed in September, 
is that, so you said that could last a while then. This could go on for another few months or we're not really sure. So at the conclusion of that case, that's when this injunction would be revisited. Is that how, how it works in terms of, um, I guess, how they would, you know, re- revisit one thing after another? I don't know how it works in the legal system. Yeah, so we can get into the weeds here a little bit. Um, like what is an injunction? Right. Because what I've learned from my non-attorney colleagues is that injunctions are very exciting and not totally well understood by the community at large, except that they're this like incredible, powerful tool that we all want. Right. We have a, you know how Oprah does that thing where she's like, you get a car, you get a car. We do that with the word injunction. (laughs) Now, whenever we don't like something, we're like, let's enjoin that. So, so the preliminary injunction, so there's also a couple different things too. Like there's an injunction and there's a preliminary injunction. So the preliminary injunction is at the beginning of the lawsuit. That's what we have here. And that's where we're saying to the court, like there's this standard, these four factors the court has to consider, but we're like, hey, Here's the issue. Here is the activity we're challenging that we're saying violates the law. Whether or not it does, that's the ultimate merits of the case. Until we figure that out, we need that activity to be stopped because if it's not, then even if we win, that win will not fully address the injuries that we've suffered because of the activities we've challenged. Does that make sense? Yes. So in a general preliminary injunction, there's four factors you have to show. In ESA cases, there's a modified standard, which is another really powerful thing about the ESA, because preliminary injunctions are generally not easy to get. It's an extraordinary remedy in the legal jargon. So you have to show the court you're likely to succeed on the merits. In in this case, we're likely to show that the regulatory scheme being applied and authorized and designed by the state of Montana is violating the Endangered Species Act. We have to show that we're likely to suffer irreparable harm if we don't get this interim relief. And then the other two factors are that the balance of equities tips in the party's favor who's asking for the injunction and injunctive relief is in the public interest. In ESA cases, courts presume that the balance of interests weighs in favor of protecting endangered species and that the public interest would not be disturbed by an injunction. So we only have to get two out of the four factors because the Endangered Species Act, I mean, this is a law that protects our endangered species. This is something that's good for everybody. It's something that's good for our environment, our ecosystems, our shared heritage of the nation includes our wildlife. And it's hard to believe now, but when the ESA was passed, it was passed by a Republican president. It was very bipartisan. It's been bipartisan for a long time. And only recently in the past maybe 20 years, and especially in the past five or 10, it has become such a political hot button. So that's what we had to show, um, likely to succeed on the merits and then irreparable harm. And in the case, you know, what's the harm here? There's harm to the grizzly bears and there's harm to the interests of the plaintiff groups. So the task force and guardians obviously 
do a lot of work to protect grizzly bears and work to make sure they can recover and have a connected population in the lower 48. And then, you know, when we're talking about a species like the grizzly bear, every single individual counts. And I don't want to imply that other species, the individuals don't matter because they do. Every single life is a life. When we're talking about grizzly bears, though, this is not a recovered population, regardless of the propaganda that the Northwest, the Northern states are putting out. Um, the GYE ecosystem is genetically isolated from other grizzly bears. And we really need grizzly bears to be what we would call, and what the Fish and Wildlife Service would call it, like a connected meta population. Because right now it's like hot pocket here, hot pocket here, some over here. We need a healthy, robust, connected population. And when bears disperse out of, you know, where they were born and where they denned with their mom, they do it very slowly and they don't move that fast. And they establish a new home range, like within maybe a couple dozen miles at the most of their home range. Um, males go farther than females and they don't... Um, breed and have cubs until they're like three or four years old. And then they only do so every few years at the most. Very slowly reproducing mammal that moves very slowly across the landscape. And one of the most egregious things here with the wolf trapping and snaring regs is when fish and wildlife changed their estimated occupied range to which the floating season open date applies. They shrunk it so it more closely hugs the areas where the population of bears is abundant. And when asked about this at the commission meeting in August, they said, well, these areas where the floating season open date no longer applies, that's where there's outlier bears. Those are AKA dispersing bears. Those are like the most important bears for establishing a recovered connected population so the very bears that we need to help grizzly bears move toward actual recovery are the ones that are now even more threatened by wolf trapping and snaring. So when I say that fish and that fish wildlife and parks made it worse this year, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, it really just seems there's this issue with specifically bears and wolves, but also a lot of these other threatened species when we talk about lynx, wolverine, is that these these connectivity issues that are not able, and then we see this with Colorado with the reintroduction with wolves happening soon, is that that's really that final piece to get them basically from, in theory, Alaska, Canada, all the way down to those southwestern states where you could have that corridor where wolves should be able to move freely and connect with different packs and move back and forth. And, and wolves obviously disperse further and obviously for longer distances than bears do. But it's it's the same with with bears, is that they, they don't have the freedom to move within these systems, like you're saying, and to establish territories to then, you know, if they, like you say, they go 12 miles outside of GYE, uh, then they go 12 miles outside of that and 12 and so on and so forth. And it's just not giving any of these animals an opportunity to do that. And that really seems to be the crux of a lot of these issues is that 
humans are butting up against this and hemming these animals in to a place that they're, they want to expand out of. And we just, we're not allowing nature to be nature at this point. I mean, what's the, so when we, when you look at this, what's the, what's the next step, Lizzie, then for, for you, for, uh, the group with, uh, with Flathead Lolo Bitterroot Citizen Task Force, what's the, what's the timeline, I guess, if you can give any that it, like, what are the next steps that are going to happen here as we move forward with this, uh, temporary relief, this injunction for bears? Yeah, I have to be careful um, because it's ongoing litigation. But after we got that order, like I said before, the state immediately appealed that injunction to the Ninth Circuit. Um, Or I guess first they had to appeal it to our judge in the district court. And then if he denied it, then they appealed to the Ninth Circuit. Um, So, and I think... I think that already happened. And so they've asked for expedited briefing in the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit will then say, no, we affirm the injunction and it will stick and we'll continue to move forward with our case in the district court. Or the Ninth Circuit could say, oh, we don't agree with that injunction. Um, in which case, you know, they could they could get rid of it altogether. They could, I think, probably get creative with it if they wanted to. Um, I'm not totally sure, but things are moving very quickly because, you know, obviously the trapping season should have started on Monday and didn't. And the state wants to get that underway as soon as they can. So with at least figuring out what's happening with the injunction, we, you know, that's, we're looking at probably the next month. Um, but it really depends on the Ninth Circuit and whether they can do expedited briefing or not. And I don't think that we've heard back yet. So it's going to be a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, did it's you? Gonna be quick. It's going to be quick. Is this abnormal for this to move for for this to move this quickly? It seems like even from the initial. Um, what was it? Not the not the initial ask. The initial complaint to now it seems was very quick is this something that's abnormal that there was a there was a turnaround this quick in terms of a ruling uh to place a temporary injunction then obviously for the appeals process to be moving this quickly or is this standard operating procedure how does how does it for you at least the stuff that you've been involved in yeah i mean it's pretty quick but because of the context it's hard like i don't know how it could not be because we filed the PI at the end of September. We got a hearing date pretty quick after that, you know, a week before trapping would start. But because we were butting up against trapping, you know, we expected a pretty quick turnaround with the order, um, especially with the holiday and stuff being that week. And then, yeah, not surprised at all that the state appealed immediately. Um, that's That's like standard you know, of course they did. Um, just as lawyers, that's what that's you're responsible for representing your client's interest and that's what they're doing. Um, so yeah, I think in contexts like this, it's not super surprising. You know, when we had our 
separate case in state court that we talked about last time. Um, we got that temporary restraining order really quickly and the PI hearing was set really quickly and we lost that PI, but that all happened really fast too, because the challenge activity was kind of right on the heels of the, of the filing. So, you know, if, if it was trying to enjoin a project that's a couple months away, that would be different. Um, yeah. So I'm not, I'm not super surprised that it has gone this quickly because it kind of had to. Right. Cause of, like you said, butting up against all these different things between trapping season, between, yeah, all the, all the different factors involved. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, what's the, I guess where, so obviously wild earth guardians released it, uh, or you guys released a press release. What's the best source of information where people can track what's going on to the best of what's obviously I know with any legal proceedings, stuff gets sort of like dripped out. It's not, it's not like, Hey, this happened until it actually happened. So where, when people, obviously we're going to have stuff in the description for this episode. So whatever is available and that we can use, we will supply to everybody who's listening here. So you guys can go through it, see what's happening. But from your expertise, Lizzie, where can people go to make sure that they're up to date and, and follow this as best as possible? That's a good question. Um, so I can give you all, I think in the press release I sent, it linked the order and the preliminary injunction brief, but we can link all the documents from the court. Um, and then to keep up to date, I think what I do to keep track of like what's going on in news is I just Google Montana wolf trapping and go to news. And then I use the tool to do like past 24 hours. The news coverage on this has been like very expansive. It went into Canada. We got um, discussed in like Connecticut and on the East coast and all over the place. So, and, and, you know, reporting is generally pretty neutral, I think for these sorts of things. So whenever something happens also like signing up for, um, keeping track of the wild earth guardians website, we post press releases as soon as we send them out to the press and then, like signing up to receive emails and stuff from either organization should also like, as soon as we know we're telling people and we're telling our members, because obviously we're doing this for them. Um, so we're going to do everything we can via our channels as well to keep everybody up to date. So if you, on the wild earth guardians website, there's like a newsroom for the press tab you can go to and it has all the most up-to-date press releases and stuff. Yeah. Is this something that, and it, it's funny that you just say that, and I, I didn't think to ask the question that it seems like, again, I know it's been, like you said, about a year since we've spoke last. Has it seemed like this last year for you just in, in the, in the case casework that you're doing to see it be as expansive in terms of coverage from all these different places. It's not just obviously a localized thing. Are you, I want to say numb to that fact now and just it's sort of standard operating procedure for you, or are you still a little bit taken aback by the fact, as you say, people are covering in Canada, Connecticut, it's East Coast, like it's all, it's nationwide. I mean, some of it's worldwide now. I think there's really more of a, a microscope, a large one, be it that, 
on a lot of wildlife issues, especially on bears and wolves and things like that. Where where are you? Where does that sit for you on you know post Thanksgiving uh, twenty in twenty twenty three? Still a lot. <laughs> like people ask me what I do, especially law students, because I don't litigate. You know, I'm not the one standing at the podium in the court writing the court documents. I do policy, right? I'm a lawyer that does policy. And people ask me what I do. And I say, I talk to the media a lot. And that's not something I ever thought I would do. They don't tell you that in law school. When I taught the lecture about this a couple of weeks ago at University of Montana, I sent the students like reading, you know, all the stuff that you guys probably read, the the briefing and the, um, we didn't have the order yet, but all the stuff we submitted to the court. And I also said, here's the press release. Because anyone that goes and works for a nonprofit, this is part of your job. And they don't tell you that. Obviously, you know, it's law school. Not everyone's going to work for a nonprofit. But it's it's wild uh, to see my name in newspapers in Canada and Connecticut. And, like, th- I knew that if we won this injunction, it would be probably international news. Like you can know that in the abstract and then it happens and it's, it's exciting. I mean, we, my comms manager, Hannah Smay, she's incredible. She came up from Idaho for this and went to court with us. And um, it's really, it's just exciting. It's exciting to see. She said like, you know, as a comms person, I don't always get the same feeling that probably you guys do when you're in the thick of it and your name's out there and your words are out there. And she was talking about how like the thrill of like actually being involved. And I think the media is part of that. Um, And I just, I'm inspired that this issue is cared about so widely. Like I've been thinking, you know, our other case and the public trust doctrine is coming up over and over and over and over. And I've done, I helped edit a textbook about the public trust doctrine and I've written papers about it. And, um, but like, what does it mean? What's the public is something I'm trying to figure out. And especially in Montana where we have wolves and grizzly bears and this wild that we don't have in a lot of places and these animals that we don't have in a lot of places, we as a human collective globally, And like, so what is the public in Montana when we're talking about managing wildlife for the public trust? Does the public include those readers in Connecticut who are obsessed with grizzly bears and watching nature documentaries and want to one day travel to Montana? Like, I don't know. And I'm just thinking out loud. I mean, I'm sure you guys think about this too. Cause I, I listen to your podcast all the time. Like when I walk to work, I'm like, I'm learning so much from these guys and the people you have on there. Um, and I know public trust doctrine is just, you know, it's a big part of the discourse now, which is really cool. Cause it was kind of niche even when I was in law school, I think. And it, it's just an interesting question. And I think the media coverage of this is a, is a good example of like maybe the public is more expansive when we're talking about grizzly bears, where we have 2,000 grizzly bears in the lower 48. People come here from all over. A new report just got released that like the outdoor recreation money brought into Montana last year was like billions. 
a lot of that is wildlife watching. So when, you know, when the state is accepting comments on wolf hunting and trapping or the grizzly bear management plan and people's views from outside of Montana are disparaged or not considered, I don't know about that. Like, I understand it's our state and we live here and we're paying taxes and all that, but this implicates so many people. And I think that should be more of the conversation, you know, in these states, especially these states where it's like some of the anti-wolf, anti-carnivore discourse is because it's federal overreach or the feds introduce wolves into Yellowstone and that's why they're here and da 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 And yeah. I don't know. I'm just rambling to you guys now. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, and we do talk about it from from time to time. It it is really easy nowadays, you know, when cultures are are blending and small towns are turning into big towns and areas are overpopulated to romance about a a bygone era where where certain places were isolated. And I'm guilty of it too. It may be that there was there was culture with clear borders or, or trade with clear borders. And, and this cultivated that, that rugged individualism that, that we romance about. And maybe certain areas didn't need outside influences to exist. And in some way that, that is really beautiful. And of course, some things we are trying actively not to repeat again, I guess that speaks to the, the, the wolf dilemma here, but today it's, it is becoming increasingly clear that we're too connected to discredit any type of person or to live on a, a metaphorical Island, even just the, the network of businesses is, is a total blur. IE you, you own a business in Idaho, for example, that has customers in Vermont or in the UK. I mean, there's, there's no more us and them and it's, it's all melting together. Whether we like that or not in every case, it is what it is. And it's clear that certain and in a lot of cases, certain beautiful places that would not exist if it weren't for some amount of tourism or visitors because governments, local or federal, would would just not find them valuable and simply, I mean, let them fade away. There are ghost towns everywhere as evidence of modernity. And so we have to, whether it's openly or begrudgingly, appreciate this concept of connectivity that keeps some of these places alive although that that means something different now than maybe it did. But I say all that to say that the things we do for wildlife or the, the way we manage wildlife does disproportionately affect certain communities. And we do need to honor that, but it doesn't only affect any one community. It does, it does affect people in Connecticut. It, it does affect people in Canada. These, these networks of biodiversity eventually do impact everyone and people who love to hunt or to ranch or, or to wildlife watch, um, or just to visit visit these towns. This it's this illusion that we are disconnected just has to dissolve because the, the it we're taking it out on the animals, but it's just that it's it it is an you illusion. Stole my answer. Um, <laughs> no, okay. I mean I I think to Stephen and, and your point. I think really just seeing. I mean the work that we that we're doing here and that you're doing to Lizzie and just seeing the expansive way that all of these ideas and thoughts and legal battles and personal battles that are, are just there, there's no border to any of those things anymore. And I, Stephen, you're right to, to think that we are 
isolationists, um, I guess, like we used to be uh, to a degree because we were. But I, I always just think about this stuff when I'm, you know, because when I moved from New York to here, to California, and just to think of, and granted, moving from, you know, one state to another that have fairly similar political views and, you know, putting all that aside, you know, I, I walk outside my door every day and there's mountains and there's, you know, I work at a, at a wolf sanctuary and I can take a short flight and go into these beautiful places that, you know, I mean, I was just in Canada and I visited, and I visited Banff National Park and I was like, this place is all as picturesque as I could have even imagined. And like I took pictures, I'm like, I can throw that on a canvas. Like I don't need anybody to take a picture of that. But it's just these places and all the things that we do are so interconnected now. And I think getting back to it, Lizzie, you know, I, I, I do believe in, and listen, I, I think that people need to be able to listen to other people and that, yes, the states are tasked with doing things to ensure the enrichment and the lives of these wild beings. And who knows, frankly, could, should we have ever done that to begin with? Probably not but we did. And they, these are the things that are in, in place. But I mean, goodness, the, the amount of dollars that flow from state to state, because let's face it, I can't go, you know, I, I, I can't, you know, could I try and find a bear in California? Sure. But I don't think I will. But if I went, you know, we went to Yellowstone, you know, and we saw like five or six of them, no problem. And it's just, those are the things that I I want to be open for everybody because everybody should be able to see these things. They should be able to let them do and live their lives. I mean, Yellowstone National Park, just for an example, it, who knows the amount of international visitors that come there because there are people around the globe that don't have these places. They don't have, they literally don't have these open spaces. It's so crammed and everybody is so jammed together. And so when they come to a place, any place for that matter, if they're hiking up, any of these mountain ranges in the West, they're like, I, I can't do this. I can't be alone with my thoughts. I can't just look out across these vast mountain ranges and see these things. And these are the reasons why all this stuff needs to be protected. These are the reasons why we need to, again, I, I say it more and more every time we talk on the podcast is that we need to get back to these primal things of we are all in this together. That is two-legged, four-legged, three, whatever the hell-legged you are, these are the things that we're all in this world together. And if we don't come to that realization sooner than later, we're, we're going down a path that is not going to be good for any of us. Um, and for any creature for that matter, that it's flying through the air or swimming through the ocean or going across the land. So I think it's, uh, I think it's one of those crises that, you know, I think we're finally, it's, it's getting to the general public more to your point. And to me, I think that's a good thing. And I think the more that we talk about it and the more that we litigate about it and the more that we push it in front of people's faces and realize, hey, this is something that we should be focused on. I think to me, that's a good thing, whether it could be good, bad, indifferent, down the middle, you know, if people are paying attention to it, then that means that we're doing the right thing. So long-winded answer for me too. <laughs> all of us. We all think about this a lot, yeah. obviously. I yeah. forget, I grew up in the West. I grew up with the Rockies outside my bedroom window in Colorado. And sometimes when we're writing stuff here, my, my dog is starving to death. I don't know if you can, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. uh, 
my boss originally is from the East and has been in the West for a while, but she reminds me when we're writing press releases or blogs or whatever, we need to paint the picture. Like the, the West of the United States, we have this public land, we have these huge, vast, open, wild places and big mountains and wildlife. And even in the U.S., we don't have that everywhere. And and it's it's hard to understand if you've never seen it. And and then to say, okay, we have that, and we have these species, these grizzly bears, who, you know, I write a lot of standing declarations for our court cases. And that means that we have a member, you know, we sue on behalf of our members. We have a member who has interests that are being harmed. Members who love grizzly bears, their interests are being harmed when grizzly bears are killed or, you know, maimed or trapped or the feds do them wrong or, you know, the list goes on. Every single one I write about grizzly bears or wolves, people talk about, because you you interview the declarant, you know, and you get their thoughts and their words and then um, help them write their declaration. They talk about this feeling, this feeling feeling. I know you guys have both felt it. This feeling when you're, even if you cannot see a wolf or a grizzly bear, when you know that they're there, you know that you're out in the wild by yourself, or even if you're not by yourself, but you're out there and you know, there's grizzly bears there, you know, there's wolves there. You experience that differently than if they weren't. We have to protect people's ability to experience that. Yeah, I mean, it, for anyone who's n- who's never hiked in grizzly country, for example, it's just it's not the same thing. Mm-mm. It's just so magical, and the world feels so enormous, and things are just different. Yeah, I understand the fear that people have of grizzly bears. I mean, I spend a lot of time in the woods by myself, and uh, and and depending on my scenario, I I carry a sidearm as well. I'm not naive to the fact that nature can be dangerous, and and I want to get home to my son. Uh, but we have to make space for things that we're afraid of. Because the trade-off is that that they make life worth living. And you can certainly feel the void in a place where grizzly bears used to be and are no longer there. Um, at least I do. I feel a, a serious void, a serious loss, even though it's so detached from me personally. It's just, I feel a, a significant loss in, in certain places where I know grizzlies and wolves used to be and I know they aren't there anymore. It makes life worth living that we have wild places that are that are intact and and yes many people will still be afraid of of the potential of being in landscapes like that and that should not f- deter us completely from from doing what we have to do to make sure they still exist you can be afraid and still recognize that it's important to have intact wilderness where we're we're not indiscriminately killing things without serious thought and serious responsibility for why we're, we're, we're impacting. I mean, the amount That's of- That's a healthy fear, I think. Yeah, it is. No, go yeah. good. I have a marine science background and in yeah. my previous life, I was like a professional scuba diver and uh, dove with sharks a lot. And yeah. that's another one of those things or night diving. Exactly. No, yeah. things can see you that you cannot see. Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. That's a, you cannot replicate that feeling in any other way. And like, I don't know. And that's just like, I think it's almost a fear of the unknown. There's a, there's a realistic acceptance of the power of a large animal 
Yeah. And then this unfamiliarity, because if you think about it, getting in a car and driving down the street is significantly more dangerous to you oh, than hundreds, yeah, hunting hundreds or not hunting, hiking or recreating in the densest grizzly bear habitat. But we're used to it, you know? Yeah. And I mean, for anyone who has yet to hike in, in grizzly country or wolf country, it's, it's just a different thing. It just feels different. Um, the, the world just feels so big and and i i have almost no reservations about being on a landscape with wolves but i totally understand the healthy fear for predators but there's also something really grounding and and beautiful to be somewhere that they are these these giants these almost mystical creatures but i'm not in any way naive to the dangers of a bad encounter with wildlife and depending on my scenario i carry a sidearm and spray because I want to be, I want to get home to my son, regardless of where I find myself, you know, but the void, the, the loss you feel in a place where predators used to be and now are not, it, it is meaningful. And the, and the, the fear we may have of the, the unknown should not deter us from doing what we need to do to have as many intact wilderness areas as, as we can. And I mean, one can be afraid and still recognize the importance of places that are dynamic and are wild and, and that we can't become numb to sort of indiscriminate, indiscriminate killing, you know, impacting biodiversity should always come with serious thought and responsibility. I'm learning how to hunt right now. And well, the season just ended, so no longer. I'll continue to learn how to hunt in the spring, but, uh, <laughs> tiptoeing around and being silent in grizzly country is so against everything I've trained myself to do when I'm out there hiking with my dog and like yelling and clapping and yeah, yeah. it's very different. The yeah. heightened awareness is it's at a unique level, I think. Yeah. And you have to appreciate people who do that all the time oh, yeah. to put food on the table that they yeah. believe is organic and naturally fed and comes from the landscape and connects them to nature. I think that's a totally valid perspective. But again, you, you, you can't spend hundreds of thousands of years becoming the smartest animal on the planet to then start acting like, uh, you know, a, 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 a basic human fear or even legitimate inconvenience is a, is a reason to to kill mm-hmm. things. We, we just can't do that anymore with how fragile things are. That's just crazy. No. We have to get back. And like you said too, Stephen and Lizzie too, when you're out there, you're on a different plane and a different wavelength because that is something, again, that I think a lot of people have lost is that there is a whole different way of being when you're out there. And I can't count the amount of individuals that we've spoken to or just inside conversation that when they mentioned, like Stephen said before, when they realized that the full plethora of carnivore is out on the landscape, meaning at least the big three, cougar, bear, and wolf, they go, that is the greatest time to be alive because you know that you are out there with the things that, yeah, should you, like you said, healthy fear? Absolutely. But respect and understanding that these creatures have been here for millions of years and have the right to the landscape more so than we probably ever have. And just because we are the dominant threat, the dominant predator, the dominant being at this juncture, at this point in time, 
does not give us the right to, as Stephen so eloquently put it, indiscriminately extirpate, get rid of, shoo away things that are either pest, vermin, or threat to us in our existence. I think that is such a missing piece of the narrative, what you both have said, of how long we've been existing with these animals and how long they were before us. Um, in the Montana wolf plan, the draft that I'm reading right now, you know, it gives like history of wolves in Montana and it starts in the 1900s or like with the recovery of wolves. And I think that plays into the narrative that is anti-wolf that is, well, they haven't been here that long or my family's been here longer or, um, you know, my fourth generation family ranching has been here longer than wolves or, um, you know, so many different things, but these animals have been on this landscape for, I don't even know how long, like millennia on millennia on millennia. And it's terrifying that the basic reactive human fear, in addition to, you know, making space for the resources that we had when Europeans colonized the West, um, that the that we can do such incredible damage as to drive species to almost the extinction is terrible. And it's not hard. It's not. No, hard it's do. really not. I listen, and you're right. The collab, the collaboration, and the coexistence that should be happening was happening hundreds of thousands of years ago, or tens. Of, however, again, if you want to go back in time, these are things that we know have happened. They have unearthed wolf bones and human or Neanderthal bones together. These things, these are facts. These are things that have happened across this continent, country, whatever, you know, a continent more so than the country. So yeah, to go backwards is doesn't help us move forward. And I really do believe if you get back to the primal portions of this conversation of what we, of where we actually started, meaning as it, as a species and understanding that, yeah, we lived alongside probably crazier, more dangerous things than exist today. And somehow we we've made it to this point. So, I mean, maybe go back that far and ask those beings and say, how are you doing this again? <laughs> yeah. And that's, for, that, that goes for both groups, by the way. It's yes. like, we can't go back in time. Yes. We cannot Agreed. go back to a time of, of, of no regulations or ex- extreme and aggressive impact. And, and we also can't go back to a time when wolves were occupying their entire historic range. We just have to do our best to come to some kind of agreement that sort of works for everybody because that's where we are. I think going back a little bit can actually be instructive because like looking at Montana and this applies in a lot of places, but indigenous people here did that. Yeah, exactly. Not that long ago and for a while. And, you know, I wrote an op-ed with James Holt and Julian Matthews of the Nez Perce tribe about how it's time to live in harmony with grizzly bears and how we can learn from the Nez Perce among so many other tribes and indigenous communities in the Northern Rockies who have been living with wolves, with grizzlies, with lions, with coyotes. And 
successfully. And that's, you know, we can't go back, but we can look back and we can learn because somebody did it. And it's not those of us that came from the European colonizers of what is now the United States, but we do have that example. And that also is forward looking because like, you know, we're talking about the biodiversity crisis. Well, like 85% of biodiversity in the world is on lands that are managed by indigenous people. And that indigenous, the indigenous knowledges that exist around the world and have been in the main discourse somewhat marginalized by Western science, um, you know, we should really be taking a hard look at the knowledge that already exists and how we as a collective can learn from these people who have been, are, and will continue to like steward this land, these species, in ways that they have been doing for such a long time. And I think that's another thing that's so incredible about Montana is we still have this rich culture and people here who, you know, do still get to um, exist, obviously, in much smaller areas than they should and than they have due to genocide and land theft. But we still have that example that we can look to. And that's what, you know, when we look back or we look forward, like we, we, we can't go back to the time when wolves were everywhere. We have to accept the reality that humans are here, but we can accept that that's coexistence. I mean, this gets into like national parks and rewilding and even parts of the wilderness act that are like, we need to protect these landscapes as if they were untrammeled by man. And it's like, well, that's really short-sighted and ignorant because many of these landscapes were not untrammeled by man when we white people happened to come along <laughs> and discover them. I'm doing quotes for those who are hearing me and not seeing me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's we have yeah. these powerful examples, and that's what we should be looking towards. Yeah, we can do it. It's just we're just mad at each other, man. That's really the bot. We're just mad at each other and we just can't get over how mad we are at each other. Yeah. And it's really unfortunate. And unfortunately over the pandemic, I felt that that expand as well. And I feel like that's, that's uh, manifesting in wildlife management and all sorts of things. We're just, there's just, we're just, there's a lot of anger going around at each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so hopefully we can, um, we can fix that in the near future. So that Something's got to give. Uh, suffer for yes it's like every time the tension like just gets higher and higher i'm like all right something's got to snap now and then it just keeps going a little higher and a little higher and it's the tension's just building i mean it it's got to happen and it will and and, and it's probably going to be messy but maybe after the mess and the dust all settles you'll be like oh we were we were we were angry about what in it what again and we're doing well in the meantime just after have as many conversations as you as you can and you know in the process let's just all try to be as respectful as possible Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's what I missed from the last time. That's we had this kind of we had this type of ending to a podcast with Lizzie last time, and I love it. I mean, and this is what we, I mean. Thanks for asking us the question too. We never get anybody asking us questions, so it worked out. Um, <laughs> I imagine you yeah. guys must have a lot going on. Yeah, seriously. So you talk to so many people about so many things. Yeah, and these are deep topics with no, 
They don't. Many of them don't have answers. Yeah. It's there. There's so many, there's so many good, th- but I mean, like Steven just said, it's the, these are the conversations that ultimately are going to change the world and are going to reverberate across everything because once it's out there and people can listen and they can choose the perspective they want to take from it. I mean, that's the ultimate freedom there is say, I agree or I disagree, but maybe there's somewhere, like you say, in the middle that we can all meet and break bread and say, Hey, this is what we can do going forward and make sure that all of these things, you know, we, we help these things survive the best we can because we are, we are the species there. That and it's such a cool planet we live on. I mean, it's unbelievable. Um, it just it would be a, such a shame, you know. Yeah, it'd be such a shame to see it go totally downhill because I mean, we can't agree on on things because we're mad at each other, you know. So I'm waiting for that uh, something's got to give yeah. thing to happen, whatever we that is. Wanna... If this um, gives you guys any optimism, this time around I've received zero threatening emails. There you go. That's great. <laughs> Yeah, I was mentally prepared for like an onslaught and wow. I haven't received a single well, one. So that's great. Love it. Progress. <laughs> I I mean that's what yeah. we want. Pro- yeah, like you said, progress is great. I know there was there was some negativity, I think, last time, right? Maybe rightfully so, but boy, look at that. See? <laughs> takes a year. That's all. Maybe we're over the hump. <laughs> it takes a year yeah. maybe, for all this stuff. Yeah, to hopefully no one. No one's listening to this and gets inspired. Yeah, don't start. Don't do <laughs> we, we just inspired everybody. Exactly. Oh boy, yeah, shouting, in the, shouting in the air in their car while they're listening. We're to trying us. to do our we're best. Like, we're all doing our best. Okay, we maybe we Busy. don't agree, but we're doing our best, man. All doing our best. That's yeah. right. We are three of us right here, and everybody else who's who's been on. Lizzie, you're killing it. Thank you so much for again just talking with us and, and giving everybody the lowdown. You're, you're awesome. Uh, thank everybody over there at wild earth guardians, everybody who's in, uh, the group that, that started the flathead Lolo, uh, Britterman, uh, bitter root, uh, citizen task force. Like, please thank everybody for that. And then let's not make it a year before you come back. You know, any updates that you have? <laughs> you Way let too us long. Know. Yeah. It's such a pleasure talking to you guys. I love your podcast. I listen to it on a consistent basis. And, um, I just, I really appreciate these conversations that you're putting out there because I do think talking and thinking and having this discourse is really the way forward and you guys are doing it. So thank you. Thank you. We appreciate that. Thank you so much. Uh, stick around for just a moment, uh, while we sign off, but, uh, Lizzie Pennock, everybody, and we'll have all this stuff in the description so you guys can follow along with these uh, with these cases and other stuff going forward. How's to you all out there and we'll be with you next time. Bye everybody. Looking for more information about Wolf Connection or the podcast? Please visit our website at wolfconnection.org where you can donate, sponsor a wolf, or become a volunteer. <laughs>